Alrighty. <clears throat> Just uh, melodramatically clearing my throat. And welcome, ever, welcoming everyone back to another edition of what has to be your favorite show on any medium by far. I mean, let's be honest, don't give me the latest uh, serial drama on Showtime or, you know, your favorite uh, streaming choice. No. Audio, visual, even in-person physical. I mean, I don't want to hear about your favorite Broadway show. This is just the best entertainment you can consume on any medium. Anyway, hello, Richard. You talking about uh, Twitter? No, I'm talking about this call-in show. Oh, it's good too, but man, there's a lot of fun <laughs> stuff going on. Yeah, I mean, what is going on with Twitter? Because like, every day there's a meltdown ritual where people who are obsessed with Twitter declare that Twitter has imploded, and nothing seems to actually ever happen. Well, this kind of this wording seems different than the other. There's a Washington Post story, and there's other reporters saying stuff, but there's a Washington Post story, the big one, uh, that just came out that said basically like, you know, Elon Musk had that thing. You have to you have to agree to be hardcore if you want to work for us. So the, the, yeah. The, yeah, apparently, a lot of them quit. And what these Twitter people are telling the Washington Post is that the system basically is going to collapse, that there's no way that this could function. There's like all these critical things that need engineers working on them to add the maintenance. And basically, you know, it doesn't give like a time frame or anything, but it says, you know, this is going to, this is going to go down. Somebody is quoting the Washington Post as saying, if you want to, um, if you, if you want, you know, if you want to uh, save your tweets, if you want to back them up, do it right now. Um, so like, you know, we're just also, everyone's on Twitter, like, okay, you know, goodbye, everyone. Like I've, I've missed you all, <laughs> you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is like, you know, if we text the rich, none of this would happen. I love yeah, it's like, it's like the Titanic is sinking. <laughs> I know. And it's, it's, it's just hilarious. And these people, or it's like, it's like on nine 11, it was uh, people <laughs> on the planes making their, they're trying to make their final phone calls to their relatives. Yeah. Well, I, I never backed up. Have you, have you backed up your tweets? I don't know how to do that. Um, I think you can download – I don't know uh, what backing your tweets up means. I know it's possible to download your archive. Okay, let me do that. Let I think check. I might have done that at some point just to test it out, but I haven't uh, done it recently. Um, okay. I don't know. I mean there's been a lot of pretty, quote, hardcore doomsaying for weeks now. Yeah. This and is, this is none of it – I mean – so we're just – I mean – why should I think that whoever is anonymously complaining to the Washington Post, who may well be one of these people who didn't like Elon Musk from within Twitter and decided to leave and like lost their cushy sinecure type job, they're saying why should I believe that they're correct when they're prophesying that all of a sudden the whole system is going to collapse? I mean, I don't know. It seems like I guess it's possible, but it doesn't seem like doesn't seem like that that should just be assumed correct. Yeah, well, that's the question. No, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, these people, these people are the kinds of people who trust any like anonymous source reporting in the Washington Post and the New York Times. So, of course, to them, it's it's gospel, right? We talk about that all the time. Like, um, do we really? I mean, does it really seem plausible to you that Elon Musk is just leaving uh, critical systems unattended within like the engineering architecture of Twitter? Uh, I have no idea. I mean, he's, uh, you know, maybe he's angered some people and maybe they left. I don't know. Like, you know, they're, they're pretty, I, they're pretty left wing and ideological and crazy and they must hate what's going on. And maybe he's asking to work hard. I don't know. 
I mean, the media's cheering them on, telling them, you know, like you're heroes and you're under the control of this new Kim Jong, you know, Un kind of character. And I don't know. I don't know. It's like <laughs> it's a Putin. It's a Putin. Forget Kim Jong Un. Putin is <laughs> yeah, not serious. Yeah, Kim Jong Un is not serious enough. Kim Jong Un is like child's play compared to. <laughs> Yeah, no, he fired an ICBM missile, but no, nobody cares. Nobody cares about Kim Jong Un. That's right. Let's see. Yeah, I just you know, I would never have known just based on my ordinary Twitter usage that there's any imminent yeah problems with yeah. Twitter, except for people constantly screaming that Twitter has been destroyed. Like I again, that hardly ever would have been apparent to me, except for people who paradoxically are like wedded to Twitter and yet are rooting it for it to collapse out of some like political grudge they have against Elon Musk and then like the wider sort of, I guess, free speech crowd. I mean, it's hard to even really tell what it is that's driving them precisely other than they manifest their desires with this paradoxical uh, rooting interest in the destruction of Twitter, which they nonetheless use regularly. And I'm sorry I just don't believe that the, this, like, bizarro Mastodon stuff or any Twitter alternative is ever really going to sufficiently fulfill the same function as Twitter did. So it's just yeah. weird that so many people seem to want it, want it to be dead. I think you are. I mean, yes, you're, I mean, you're right. I mean, there's a, uh, wait a minute, what's this? I got, I got dunked on by Talib recently, but, uh, uh, <laughs> What day would you block me? Okay, um, the uh, I was trying to look for how to download my tweets, and I just saw like I just pulled up my analytics. Anyways, um, the uh, yeah, I mean this is obviously a thing. Like R.I.P. Twitter is now trending on on Twitter. I mean we've, we've reached levels. I mean the thing I said that only thing I noticed was like less censorship. Basically, it's not giving you those annoying things. Are you sure you want to tweet that? Oh, ninety percent of people in your situation would not tweet such a thing. I mean these like I really still get weird. that. You still get that? I haven't got that in a while. Well, tell someone to fuck themselves, and then you'll, you'll <laughs> test if it comes up. Because I, yeah. I get it. I, still, yeah, I, I try. I like try that's the thing. He's barely changed anything in practice. It seems other than this blue check scheme, which is like not even that big of a deal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this is. I mean, this is funny. Like they're going to look like fools, but you know they're not going to care if this doesn't collapse in like you know a week or something. I mean, this is like this is this is ridiculous. And uh, if even if it doesn't happen, it would be very sort of. It's like an, it's like an experiment. I mean, you hear this like eighty twenty rule that like you know like there's twenty percent of each company or each organization that's like doing all the work and the other people are pretty much useless. Well, here's like a real test of that. You know, if you could cut half your employees, if you could cut and say more than half, it was seventy five hundred. It went down to they're like thirty five, and they say now it's at two to two twenty five hundred. So more have been leaving after this thing. So you're down to uh, like a quarter, you know, thirty percent of it. And if like thirty percent of the original workforce, and if the thing works. If we're we're here three months from now and nothing has changed, like what, what will that tell you? I mean, that'll tell you that that's amazing. That's like you know, sixty seventy percent of the company was just useless. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm sure uh, you know Twitter is operationally uh, teetering on the edge of collapse because they got rid of their like human human rights supervisor, or there was some ridiculous job that somebody had within Twitter who you know was laid off and everybody was giving them condolences because of their uh, their being, you know, terminated. And the job was something like, I don't know, they, they, they were like, the, they, they, were, they, they oversaw the Human Rights Bureau of Twitter. 
and nobody thought to themselves, why in the hell does Twitter have a human rights division? What does that even mean? Yeah, I mean, you see these things like, oh, safety and uh, safety and, uh, you know, what is it, what is they called? What are they called? Safety and uh, security. I don't know, whatever they call it. Like all those people are like those are hit a lot like hr people are being hit so a lot of this stuff is like you imagine they might be worthless but like the washington post story says there's like six critical systems that have like either zero or like one or two engineers and these like things are all necessary to keep it going i mean that's what they're claiming they're claiming this is like i mean they're gonna they're gonna have no credibility on this stuff i mean it's not their fault but the, you know it's, it's the employees that are lying but like I don't know. Like, I don't think they would take one employee's word for it, but like, so multiple of them must be saying it. Um, and we'll see. If this is just like a story these people told themselves or or not. Yeah, I'm trying to find what the hell that human rights Twitter woman was, but it was something to do like her her job title included the phrase human rights, which you know had nothing to do with actually keeping the platform running, and it was just this biz, ideological busy work that. Because they had broadened out the staff to unsustainable levels, uh, people within the organization could like burrow into their own little nook and have this just little fiefdom within a fiefdom and make it seem like they're all important and doing something that is, you know, politically or socially vital. And uh, nobody really even seems to check like what they're ever doing. And so those, yeah. lots of those people have been got, have yeah. been uh, terminated. And yeah, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem to have detracted from the Twitter user experience yet. Yeah, the Mastodon thing is, I mean, that was a cope, and that's originally uh, that's, that's that's already um, universally considered sort of a joke. Like I saw this New York Times article, like what to do if you're leaving Twitter. Like it's like <laughs> yeah. it has this like thing, like how to how to cope with it. And one of the things like Mastodon was like presented as a possible alternative. And it's like, oh, it's you know apparently not ready or unable to give you the same experience. So even like the New York Times like anti Twitter thing is like admitting Mastodon doesn't work. This is what conservatives did all those years when they like were yeah, exactly. Twitter. Like truth social like Trump it's so funny. I heard a funny theory of Trump of like he's running for president now. He wants to go back to Twitter, but like he made he's basically an investor in this truth social thing, and he has like some kind of oblig. He might have some kind of obligation to like stay there, um, or he'd be getting sued. It's so, like he can't come back to Twitter and like you know, which would probably be the best thing for his presidential run. Um, but yeah, this is a co- this is a cope that you're going to find anything else. Twitter goes down. I mean, I think me and you are going to be in good shape, Michael, because it's going to be. Um, you know, we rely on Twitter a lot, but we're we're good substackers too. I mean, there's some there's we're competing right now with people who are like just Twitter and people who are like journalists who need Twitter to like drive things. And I think we're us people who could create something on Substack. I think you know we don't necessarily need it. It, it relatively speaking, like maybe we'll reach fewer people, but we'll reach more people relative to what other people could reach. Yeah, yeah, and we have Colin. We have Colin. Exactly. <laughs> we can even we can even dig out Clubhouse. Yeah, we could dig out Clubhouse. Is Clubhouse uh, I don't. Does that app still work? I don't even know. Uh, yeah, they update the picture on it. They have a nice smiling. It's always black people. It's like it's like I don't. It doesn't matter. But like every like it's always updated with like a new a new black guy or like a group of black women. Like every two weeks. I've never <laughs> yeah. seen an app that like changes its its uh you know yeah, it's, display. It's, it's always a, so it's much. always a, my memory is it's always a very fun looking black man or woman. Yes. Yeah. Um, I know. <laughs> That's a big show. So, um, man, yeah. Lot, lot yeah. Of I mean, it does remind me. Actually, you know, Mastodon is not new. Mastodon. I don't know when it started, but 
I remember Chatter around it a couple of years ago as not even some kind of counterweight to the ownership of Twitter, but just this idea that Twitter or that uh, social media ought to be decentralized in some sense. And Mastodon supposedly was the way to bring that about. And I remember checking it out um, a couple of years ago, and it's just like pretty much impossible to really decipher or like not worth the effort to decipher how to use it effectively if Twitter is available as sort of the standard option. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, the the, the immediate um, exodus that supposedly was being rallied when uh, Musk took over did remind me of, you know, these uh, failed aborted attempts by, by right-wingers to come up with their own Twitter alternative. And because they couldn't consolidate around one and it was like everything, everything was distributed between, you know, Parler and then Getter, I guess it's pronounced, and then Truth Social and then like Gab is still floating somewhere around in the background. I mean, they, it, it was worthless. So they all pretty much seemed to give up and just came back to Twitter, which I think is probably the trend. I mean, I don't know. It kind of strikes me that once you have a social media network with lots of, uh, so, uh, social capital built into it over the course of years, the idea that you can just whip up an alternative overnight seems untenable unless there's a way to make like the followings portable so that you know, you're not just starting from scratch on a new platform. Yeah. That's what these crypto people are always talking about. They're yeah. always like, you know, everything you get. I, I don't, you know, I don't buy any of this. I don't even understand it. But it's like, you know, it's like if you if you can't like explain it to people and make it as simple as possible, it's not gonna it's not gonna work. Uh, yeah. yeah. You also you didn't mention Parlor, which you know Kanye West bought it. You know that, that's a hilarious story too because it's like her, her the like one of the, the either the CEO or the owner or something is like Candace Owens' husband. And yeah, like Kanye a British is like, aristocrat. Yes, I know he's a British aristocrat, but he's uh, he, he is. So Kanye, they scammed Kanye, like they had the I don't know if they scammed it, but they basically got Kanye to buy Parlor. Like they were just him and Candace Owens were just hanging out and like bonding over their shared you know political ideology. Yeah, sharing over their bonding over their anti-Semitism. <laughs> they all, those, those are always the best social gatherings. Yeah. <laughs> In a dungeon. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, Twitter is unique. I mean, it's like, you know, people who build things, like, it's not always the case that, like, if they weren't there, like, somebody else would have built it, right? It's like, you know, people, like, build things and those things work. And then, like, you know, if they're gone, they're, they're just gone. So if this really collapses, you know, our politics will be our politics Well, remember, will be, our culture remember will be different. Jack Dorsey personally facilitated... Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter because Jack Dorsey had long recognized that there were problems within the organizational structure of Twitter that had in large part to do with it being a publicly traded company um, that had expanded too rapidly and unsustainably you know, under his leadership at times. And so, I mean, even you could just go look at those uh, text messages that were that came out over the course of Elon Musk's litigation uh, that he, you know, then gave up on and just decided to buy Twitter at the full price. Um, but you could even see the text messages going back and forth between Jack and um, and Elon, where and and you know, Jack Dorsey has talked about this elsewhere, where he he actually thought that 
the whole th- whole thing needed to be revamped organizationally. So this idea that so 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 in, in other words, what's happening happening right now is happening at the behest of the original founder who had the original vision for it and who still has a pretty deep like psychic commitment to ensuring the long-term sustainability of the platform, right? So I mean it's not so it's not just Musk all of a sudden unilaterally, you know, exercising this like tyrannical control or something. It's actually done with the blessing and encouragement and active facilitation of like the key visionary founder of it. I mean, not to be too highfalutin, but that does happen to be the case. I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know, like he was just one board member at that point, right? But it's like, uh, you know, I mean, it's a private company, like they used to always say. I mean, when you used to complain about censorship, but they liked what was going on. Oh, it's a private company. So now it's like, it's not even a public trading, but you know, publicly traded company. Uh, so obviously, you know, they can do what they want. You know, it's, it's amazing. Like you look at the uh, New York Times or Washington Post app, and it's like, Musk at Twitter. It's like like the war in Ukraine, right? It's got like its own. Yeah, it's got like its own, own never ending like update stream. Yeah, I mean it's 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 amazing. Um, yeah, it's the front page of the New York Times right now. I mean, like we for, we've forgotten about Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine is like you know relatively less. You know, this is a lot going on. I mean, the new Congress. Uh, it is the uh, front page. <laughs> That's funny. Trump's announcement. I mean, no one even cares. I mean, no one really cares. I mean, it's not getting much attention at all. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's incredible. So why that? I, I thought you were joking. I, I why would this be the absolute top headline right now on the New York Times homepage? That's so weird. It's above Pelosi steps aside. Uh, yeah, let me check it out. <laughs> Washington Post. Same thing. Washington Post. Hundreds of workers. Uh, yeah, they have their. Uh, let me see. Do they have the updates thing, or am I just exaggerating when I see that? Uh, they have the. Uh, I, I haven't seen that, but I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, I did see. I saw something. Yeah, Pelosi second. Pelosi stepping down. Web uh, uh, telescopes, uh, web telescope. <laughs> Lord Boberg. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, they're, they're my post top post. Yeah, right. So this is. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not like it's completely stupid though. I mean, it's not like this is not because this is a big deal. If Twitter disappears, right? It, even if it changes a lot, this will influence our culture. I mean, this is like this is a huge part of you know this is a huge part of our politics. Uh, huge part of. Uh, sort of what it means to be an American who pays attention to the news these days and like it's pop culture it's a big deal and so yeah I don't think it's a big I don't think it's like unreasonable to put it no I agree I agree actually I agree I mean if it were the case that Twitter is on the verge of just disappearing then that would be clear headline news I just think a lot of the consternation around the organizational reshuffle within Twitter at the direction of Elon Musk, it seems like it's been chronically exaggerated purposely for like some kind of political reason or some kind of, uh, you know, nursing some kind of grudge within the context of the media orbit. I, I don't know exactly. So I'm not 100% sure that this particular development would warrant that kind of coverage. Uh, but if it is true, what is being forecast, then yeah, I guess it does. It's funny. I was at yesterday, a, um, defense summit sponsor, uh, organized by Politico in DC and, uh, sponsored by sponsor, sponsored by, uh, Lockheed Martin and Raytheon naturally. Uh And at the, uh, ahead of one of the, um, 
dialogues, you know, that were being hosted on stage, the Politico journalist who was the moderator told everyone that they should follow along on Twitter or Mastodon. And you got a sense almost that like they mentioned Mastodon, <laughs> not because they actually expected it's anyone like to use it or sheer. even know what the hell he's talking like about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like another identity. It was just, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's what it was. That's what it was. It was just a signifier of like, you know, they're aware. They're aware that, could be, you know, a certain portion of the attendees might think it's problematic yeah. To only mention Twitter now. Or not, none of them are actually on. No, none not. of them. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, so like, I don't know. Journalists are in a tough place. They don't. They have no way of verifying uh, whether the what these uh, you know Twitter and the former employees are telling them is true. Right? It just like they have to make a judgment. Does it sound credible or not? Uh, and then go with it. So you know, all we can do is like sit and wait and see what happens. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of this defense summit yesterday, I wasn't invited to it. I just signed up for it. But then I guess I was seen as an important um, attendee because I, I was uh, contacted by a Politico like events coordinator who invited me to uh, bring a, a, along a guest. Uh-huh. So, okay. <laughs> so they wanted me to invite a guest to accompany me to the Summit, which I didn't do because I don't like to torture my guests. Why? Um, <laughs> Why would, like they wanted you to bring a guest, but they just said you're welcome to bring a guest. Well, they wanted me to. I mean, they like said you know, you've been picked, selected as an esteemed attendee to you know bring uh, bring a guest of your choice. I mean, I don't know what the hell that was about. It's sort of weird. Um, but I uh, jotted down a quote that I wanted to just read to you. This was um, this was uh, Lara. Seligman, who is a defense reporter for Politico, she um, she was interviewing. I think it was the Army Chief of Staff. I forget who it was. It was some you know pretty high ranking uh, Pentagon official uh, in the who has jurisdiction over the Army. You know a, a general, right? Um, but a general in an administrative role in the Pentagon. And um, so here here's the here's the types of questions. That she, in her position as you know, a very keen adversarial journalist at a at an ostensibly journalistic event. I mean, this was a Politico summit. It's not. It's not really, <laughs> at least, overtly marketed as like a defense industry summit, which also exists, and actually, which I'm also attending this week in D.C. right down the street. Um, you know, and that's where you would expect just like infomercials. But this is supposed to be a journalism summit, right? At least of some sort. And here's just an example of the question that she put to the, the general. Quote, I wrote, I wrote it down verbatim. What do we need to provide Ukraine to support them? That's her question. It's not, I mean, it's not a terrible question. It's like, you know. <laughs> yes, it is. What do we need to provide to Ukraine? To support literally those words, I mean, what you could ask what what weapons would make the most difference for Ukraine on the battlefield? That's a little better. Yeah, but the, the, think of what think of what the premise is. It's not journalistically probing the the underlying assumptions behind U.S. policy or asking somebody in a position of policymaking authority or who has you know practical. Um, oversight of various mechanics of how the, how the policy is being executed. I'm not asking him to justify anything or explain anything or pointing out blind spots or highlighting certain 
dangers or froth considerations. It's always from the standpoint of what isn't the U.S. doing to continue supporting Ukraine? Like the, the, the assumption baked into the, her question, and you see this at virtually every press conference on Ukraine, uh, it, it doesn't – it takes for granted – all these premises underlying the policy, right? It's not a challenging question. It's basically just, it's, it's a PR question. It, it's what, it's what, it's somebody within, it's almost like if she's speaking on behalf of like the Ukraine government, right? Rather than speaking on behalf of a skeptical citizen who just wants sort of to start at first principles and examine the whole landscape here with fresh eyes and you know actually scrutinize the policy. So, I mean, it's not it's not like an outlandishly ridiculous question when you hear it because it's so common, right? Uh, but it's 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 common in a way that is representative of the lack of critical thinking that these people do on this subject. And you know, also just given the nature of this event, she couldn't ask a really difficult question to the the. Um, to the uh, general, because it's, you know, basically uh, in all but name, an industry conference event. I mean, it's, you know, tons of people with, uh, you know, just from the, the attendees were not largely journalists. It was people from the defense industry. What is this? What is this thing for? So political uh, sponsoring, what is that exactly? They just have, I mean, they have just basically now, I mean, this is the second annual, what they call defense summit, where they just, you know, uh, bring, um, Pentagon officials and uh, members of Congress and uh, executives from Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, which were also sponsoring organizations, to just have like a you know a day of uh, public dialogues and chats and stuff. Um, so I mean, I I used I utilized the uh, opportunity to try to talk to a couple of people. I you know talked to uh, uh, Senator uh, Mike Rounds of South Dakota. Um, Jim Cooper, Congressman from Tennessee, and I also talked to a Pentagon uh, official. So you know, it's it's worthwhile for from that standpoint for me anyway. But for the pretty much everybody attending, it's just like a def- one of these countless defense industry uh, con- conferences. But you know, with this like vague journalistic auspice, and um, you know, uh, organized by Politico, because you know, so many of these media organizations are trying to follow the Atlantic model now of not of like diversifying their revenue stream uh, so they're not just reliant on ads which you know makes sense but it in practice what, what what's happening is that the atlantic you know the atlantic has these like never-ending conference uh, series series of conferences um and it's like the most ripe for you know corruption of any Wait, journalistic practice how, how how are the how are they profitable with conferences the atlantic has conferences and they make money off of them how they get sponsorships so people <laughs> just pay them. You know, they, like like you know the um, the um, uh, the you know the Aspen Conference. Uh, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's sponsored by every. You know, uh, I, I guarantee you this this Aspen Conference this past uh, August. I think they're held in July. It was you know it would have been sponsored by you know Pfizer and. General Dynamics and you know uh, Microsoft and blah blah blah. Have you ever been invited to any of those conferences where you become a little bit of a famous person? It's like a networking thing where they're like, oh, you know, you meet with other people who are like 
tech executives and entrepreneurs and politicians and stuff. Have you ever gone to one of those? Like a private conference? Yeah. Um, not a conference. I mean, I've been to like, I guess meetings, I would more characterize them as. Why oh, have you? Uh, yeah. And like you, it, usually they're break even events. Like, you know, you pay them and then like it's break even. But Aspen, I'm sure, you know, I've never been invited to anything. Well, you had to pay to go to the conference? Yeah, but I, and I didn't want to do it, but then, like, I saw, like, there were a lot of famous people who did it, so I'm like, okay, so, like, I'm not, you know, I'm not, it's not just me. But, yeah, basically, they're break-even stuff. Um, that's all they're, they're doing. They're breaking even. Um, and, yeah, you just go and you chat with people for a few days. Um, Where Can, you, can you give any more details about that? No, I think you're not, I think you're technically, okay. uh, I think you're was, it, was, it the, was it Bilderberg? No, it wasn't anything that famous. Okay. It wasn't one that like you would have heard of. Um, I know there was one. Um, there was one somewhat recently in Miami with like crypto connotations, but uh, yeah. I, I don't know the full deal on that. Yeah, yeah. So there's uh, yeah, there's a lot going a lot going on since we last talked. Yeah, the election happened. Uh, this FTX thing happened. Uh, Twitter is happening. Poems. I um, I, uh, I I did a bogus advertisement for this call-in show by saying that we we jointly you and I Richard and I jointly figured out we jointly solved the mystery of the Polish uh, missile incident. Well, I, and we're going to reveal I, our findings. I, I mean, I, I just get all my information from Jen Stolberg. So yeah, he. I, I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Jen, Stol- I mean, Jen Stoltenberg, my arch nemesis. Stoltenberg, sorry, I, I don't. Uh, yeah. Well, he know. let me into his big. Su- and he always references his yearly summit. He's so proud of it, and I, he he did let me come this this past June. So I can't be. I can't hold it. I can't be too nasty to him. Is he? Is he Danish? Is that his nationality? He's Norwegian. He's Norwegian. Wow. Okay. He's a forgettable Norwegian social democrat who's like now thrust into this NATO position. He was like a politician. He was like a social democrat. Uh, yeah, he was a he was a Norwegian politician. Yeah, uh, I think he might have been prime minister. Was he prime minister? He was. He had some high ranking position in in the Norwegian government. Uh, I didn't. I thought he. I thought he would have been a military man. I thought he no. would. Have been a, uh, he's a general. Yeah, no, he, yeah he, was he, was the, he was the uh, he was the prime minister of Norway from two thousand five. To 2013. Ah, oh, that's very, uh, that's very interesting. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I mean, what we learned here is, I think that like America is not desperate to like look for a provocation. They could have had it, right? But then, like the Ukrainians are. I think that's what we realized, right? It's like the Ukrainians will say or do anything to try to get us, like you know, more involved in the war. While Biden, the Biden administration, you know, this sort of goes with those like, you know, reports in the news that the Biden administration is sort of pressuring Ukraine to start negotiating. Um, so, yeah. which I don't buy, but yeah. Yeah, I don't buy. I don't. I, I sort of, you know, I sort of buy it. I think they tell themselves that that's what they want. Um, but I don't think like it's realistic to think. Well, there was a Washington really Post person. article in, um, you know, like two weeks ago. This was the weekend before the midterms, so whenever that was. Um, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, had gone to Kiev for in-person talks with whomever. And the Washington Post put out an article where it said that, you know, Jake Sullivan was this emissary to convey the message to Ukraine that they had to, like, somewhat change their public position on the question of negotiations because, remember – um, in the in late 
September, early October, Zelensky put out this presidential decree where he renounced the prospect of ever negotiating with Russia so long as Putin is in power, which meant like, okay, so until there's regime change in Russia, no negotiations. So like pretty much maximalist position, right? Um, and uh, 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 Sullivan was dispatched to sort of have them soften their public position. And what the Washington Post clarified was that the idea behind this trip and behind this um, behind the scenes encouragement was not actually to facilitate negotiations. It was for PR purposes because the U.S. recognized that if Ukraine wanted to retain international support, it couldn't totally renounce the idea of negotiations. It had to, for PR purposes, at least maintain some superficial openness to them. Like, so that was the purpose mm -hmm. of, the, of, of goading Ukraine into modifying its public stance. Yeah, that, that's, so, the that's the Washington Post story. And so, like, yeah. it's like, which part of it is true and which part of it is pure? Like, maybe they really do want Ukraine to negotiate, but, like, they have to, like, tell the Washington Post that this, like, they don't because the war hawk, they need the war hawks to think, you know, whatever. So it's like, it's, it's complicated. Or is it just the way it says that they really don't want Ukraine to negotiate? Yeah, right. So we don't know. I mean, either of those things could be true. Yeah. Well, and, and yesterday, um, Mark Milley, who's you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff had made a comment at an event in New York like a, a few days ago that people read a lot into where he suggested that, you know, now might be the time to think about initiating negotiations while Ukraine is the upper hand and that kind of thing. And um, Mark Milley, Milley was asked about this again in a joint press conference with Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, and really, it, it doesn't amount to much. I mean, you have to look at it from the standpoint of, yeah, you'd if it's the case that the U.S. thinks for PR purposes, the prospect of negotiations has to be on the table, at least, uh, again, superficially, then it would make sense for, like, Millie to be the guy to float that option, even if nobody has any intent to actually implement it practically. And if anything... Cold water was thrown on it by Austin at this joint press conference where he was actually saying that, you know, the U.S. is uh, came out of this latest meeting with all the defense ministers from Europe that happened yesterday. And they're more committed than ever to providing Ukraine everything it needs throughout the winter. And they fully expect Ukraine to keep fighting with full intensity. And even for the first time that I'm aware of, for uh, in terms at least in terms of somebody at Austin's high-ranking position articulating this, Austin affirmed that it was for Ukraine to decide whether they're going to retake Crimea militarily and that the U.S. would support their decision. So he's actually at least seeming to state that it is, in fact, which you know could have been inferred, but he said it ex pretty much explicitly that the U.S. would back an offensive to retake uh, Crimea, which is sort of always uh, an ambiguous aspect of this. I actually, one of the things I've been asking these elected officials about, if I can, is this very question of Crimea and uh, Mike Rounds, the uh, South Dakota senator, who probably most people don't know exists, but he actually said that you know, he didn't he didn't really know what, because he's a Republican, he didn't know what the, um, the Biden administration's policy was on that front, but he personally supported on principle the idea of the U.S. backing an offensive in Crimea. So, um, 
uh, you know, it seems like this is in the cards. And if that's actually so, if the U.S. were interested in uh, negotiations in a substantive way, I mean, would that be the rhetoric? I don't know. It's it's always sort of mixed and mixed signals, right? But um, I think a lot of people there was some wishful thinking. Uh, as to uh, kind of seizing on some of these stray comments by Milley and others about negotiations now being this uh, now being in the cards, but it also get, lends credence to this theory that you know Ukraine, whenever negotiations seem like they're even getting some superficial momentum, there's always this strange incident that happens where it's it, you know the um, the whole uh, negotiating process is just blown up. Now, I'm not asserting any conspiracy theory, okay? But you know, if um, if you what Ukraine, if what you top Ukraine officials actually said was true after this Poland missiles incident, and it was Russia, you know, s- deliberately striking Poland, then yeah, that would uh, throw a monkey wrench into the whole idea of negotiations, right? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, so I had a um, on my uh, Substack, I had a interview with uh, Chris Nicholson about the war in Ukraine. And um, our big disagreement was that he's saying that, like, where we are right now is that a lot of, like, the the danger for Ukraine is that the West could cut off aid. Um, and it has to keep, like, winning or at least, like, you know, moving forward or doing something. Otherwise, uh, you know, it's going to not have aid and then Russia can hold on to its territory or maybe Russia can can do a little better. And my argument is no, basically Ukraine and he, you know, he's putting a lot of, uh, you know, he's putting a lot of stock in Millie's comments and this comment by Kevin McCarthy. We talked about a few weeks oh, ago. Oh, please uh, send him uh, my sub stack on that. Uh, okay. Where I interviewed a bunch of Republican, you know, congressional candidates. Ah, good, whatever. good. I, yeah. I should do that. And then, um, yeah. And my, my argument was no, um, this is like such a taboo that these are just like taboos. They're, they're you know, they're these people like, occasionally hint somebody will occasionally hint that maybe we shouldn't support ukraine forever and then like the entire media establishment will like just you know the, this media and the congress will just come down on them right and so i you know i believe that you know basically ukraine has a has a blank check forever um and in that case i mean that it it is going to be there you know it's going to be up to them uh, what they want to do that that's true we're not gonna we're not gonna cut this off well, I think, even, but, but I, I'll sorry. say this about the Biden administration I think it's possible that they might want peace negotiations or some of them might um, but I think that if they try to move in that direction they're gonna find and they're probably smart enough politically to know this it's not gonna work um, the, the, the pressure just from the media uh, from the national security establishment from foreign governments uh, again the media like that's the biggest thing and then oh Congress too of course um, they're going to make if they make any hints towards peace, they're going to make life extremely, extremely difficult for them. They'll invite the Zelensky to Congress, like uh, the Republicans did with Netanyahu, right? And just right. embarrass and destroy the president. So I, I don't think it even matters what the Biden administration wants. I think they'll be forced into supporting Ukraine. Definitely. Well, one thing Milley said yesterday was that even at this point, where Russia withdrew from you know Kherson city. Um, although they still have troops in Kherson Oblast, if I understand correctly. Uh, but even right now, you know, with at the current stage of the lay of the land, uh, Russia occupies 20% of Ukraine. So you're saying that, so this idea that negotiations would be imminent would have to use as a starting point that Russia has the leverage of controlling 20% of Ukraine territory. 
Now, I don't know. Is that does that seem like a viable negotiation starting point given all the rhetoric that's yeah. gone into this conflict and the outsized significance assigned to who controls what piece of territory? I mean, it just doesn't seem plausible, you know, given how exaggerate, you know, how uh, amp- exaggerated the stakes have been of Russia controlling any, ter- any territory whatsoever. Um, so I don't know. It just doesn't really pass the smell test yeah. to me. And then in terms, of the McCarthy, in terms of the McCarthy comment, quickly, um, that, was, that was maddening. I mean, that, that, that McCarthy comment was immediately twisted by Democrats and Democratic-aligned me- media as indication that Kevin McCarthy, once he were to take power in January, would immediately move to cut off all funding to Ukraine, which makes zero sense because even that phrase, blank check, that's a phrase which even Biden himself says Ukraine is not getting. Like even, in other words, even Joe Biden himself says that he agrees with the idea of not giving Ukraine a blank check. It's a meaningless phrase, and yet it was was so over-interpreted, really it's just a cheap partisan political tactic. I mean, one thing I get into in that Substack article was that um, after the 2006 midterms, which Democrats won on a putatively anti-Iraq war platform, right? Uh, guess what Nancy Pelosi said? This was the first time she became Speaker of the House, right? No longer is the Bush administration going to get a blank check. That's what she said. She used the exact fr- same phrase. And the Democrats kept funding the Iraq war without really much of a challenge at all. Um, Bush launched the surge in 2007, weeks after Democrats entered power in the House of Representatives. So um, it's a meaningless phrase. If you look at, I mean, I I watch way too many of these local congressional debates, uh, but one of the insights that I painfully was able to acquire was that even Democrats, including Democratic incumbents, they started echoing this idea that, of course, Ukraine is not going to get a blank check. Nonetheless, we have to keep supporting them, right? So this idea that Kevin McCarthy, in using that phrase, said anything of significance, which is totally overwrought and nonsensical of an interpretation, and yet it got extrapolated into this you know, ludicrous narrative about how Republicans were wanting to capitulate to Putin's authoritarianism. So if the guy that you were talking to had his whole argument predicated on that comment by McCarthy being of any significance, then I have to question his entire you know, subsequent thesis. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's. I think he's good at uh, war analysis, but I think uh, yeah, his his understanding of politics is not uh, you know, I, I don't think was the best in that situation. Um, yeah, it's sort of like this is the way taboos work. So sometimes you'll hear like, oh, there's transphobia, there's like you know anti-Semitism, and the thing will actually be minor. And the fact that we're hearing so much about like transphobia or like you know anti-gay hatred or whatever, <laughs> it's because like the taboo on criticizing the group is like so strong that like any little thing anywhere seems like you know some kind of overwhelming outbreak of oppression it's sort of like that too it's like it's such a taboo to be against aid to ukraine that like anyone even hinting right anyone who gives the least bit of like indication 
that we might have a peace deal with Russia, um, that we might sit down and talk to them or encourage Ukraine to do so, that gets shut down right away. And then people who just like sort of, you know, follow the news say, oh, my God, look, all these people want to have a, a negotiation with Russia. It's like, no, you you sort of you missed the point. You missed exactly uh, what you missed what was happening here. Um, so I, that's the way. Yeah, that's the way. Um, that's the way I see it. I think it's just I think this is just like a demonstration. I think there's like, you know, like I think there's few things in politics uh, in American politics as certain as we're going to uh, keep uh, aiding Ukraine or maybe the existence of Social Security and Medicare and maybe a few other things, but not much, not much beyond that. Yeah. And, and if you listen to what the defense industry is saying when it sort of speaks to itself, either by reading the defense industry specific press, which hardly anybody ever seems to read, but I do because I'm sort of a maniac. And also, if you hear like what the common themes are at these conferences and stuff, um, what they're talking about and what is actually being effectuated by legislation, given the upcoming uh, national defense um, uh, NDAA, which is basically the annual defense budget, what they're doing is preparing for long-term what they call scaling up of the industrial capacity of the defense sector. I mean, you've seen this come out in bits and pieces over the past couple of months, but now it's really coming to the fore where, um, you know, for example, the Pentagon uh, is going to have a reformed contract procurement process where basically no bid contracts are back for Ukraine and also Taiwan um, and because, you know, these defense contractors, they want more sort of long-term assurance as to the reliability of these contractual arrangements so that they can invest for like, you know, a year from now or two years from now for supplying Javelin missiles and stuff um, or HIMARS. And, um, you know, it's basically just assumed now on a bipartisan basis that the U.S. is going to return to a Cold War era um, posture of defense uh, industrial capacity. And they're doing that directly in relation to uh, Taiwan and Ukraine, uh, with, with Ukraine obviously being the acute reason now and Taiwan being, you know, this slightly more short to medium term consideration. So, um, this, so if, if they're talking about, um, peace negotiations and stuff and how all of a sudden, you know, the war is just going to grind to a halt. Um, you got to ask yourself, why is it that the whole in, in defense sector, uh, in, in conjunction with Congress is planning for something pretty much the, uh, antithetical to that? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, uh, we're, we're in, we're in complete agreement on this. So yeah, I mean, this is, this affects how you see how the war is going to turn out. I think that it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're looking at Ukrainian support for a long time. Um, and even, like, Russia could might be deluded here. I don't know if this is true or not, but Daily Beast reported that, like, Putin was, uh, you know, waiting for the midterms. He didn't want to give Biden a win to withdraw from Kherson. Did you see this? No, I didn't. That was in the Daily Beast. Like, what was the source on that? Some, uh, like, you know, like, here, was the, called, what like, was the source? Somebody in the Daily Beast pulled it out of their ass? <laughs> Probably American intelligence claiming oh, to have Russia. You know, the, they always claim to have like you know they had this thing in political where like they had they claimed they had people in Putin's inner circle uh, who like planned like the 2016 you know uh, interfering in the 2016 
election. So anyway, this is about who knows. But I do know I, who knows if that's true. But I do. It was probably Fiona like, Hill speculating on something, and then they they attributed to a former national security official. Yeah, but you do you do look at you actually you do look at um Russian TV. So like, there's this woman named Julia Davis. Do you follow her? Yeah, I know. I know who you're talking about. She blocks me, so I can't. I literally oh, follow she her. But I know who you're talking bad. about. That's yeah. too bad. You should get an alt and follow because it's actually very valuable. Uh, she and uh, this other guy named Francis Scar, who uh, for, works for the BBC, they have these little translations of clips from Russian TV. Yeah, so yeah, I know. I know. Are, these people are partisan, but it's like it's actually good information to have. I wish you know more people would do this. Um, but on the Russian TV, like apparently a lot of these guys, they have bought into like. You know, they like they know as little as like our people do, like the pundits in Russia. So they're sitting around and they're like, Oh, if the MAGA Republicans win, you know, Kevin yeah. McCarthy. Like they're buying it, right? They're buying yeah. it. <laughs> right. And and so they, they probably you know, so this could be like this could be a source of Russian miscalculation. Like Russia could actually believe of like if Trump wins in twenty twenty four or any maybe any Republican wins. Oh, you know, they'll stop supporting Ukraine and we can have a peace deal. And if Russia is operating under that assumption, like it's going to be very bad because they're going to, you know, they're going to keep they're going to keep like going and they're going to be in bad shape because the U.S. support is going to keep coming and they're just going to have to decide what to do next. Yeah, actually, um, Biden in his press conference the day after the midterms, so like last last Wednesday. He actually seemed to make the same illusion where he said illusion with an A, where he said that, oh, it's interesting that the Russians waited the day after the election in order uh, to to withdraw from her song. Oh, Biden himself said that. Yeah. I mean, he didn't he didn't explicitly make the connection, but he just kind of alluded to it in that same way. And but I don't really understand like what I mean, who knows? Maybe Putin does. Maybe Putin. I mean, Putin is 70 years old. Maybe he does just have like a boomer type media consumption diet where he believes this crap that just get you know he's like you know uh like the cable news consensus around like what republicans would do if kevin mccarthy becomes speaker of the house so yeah it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me actually if he's also ill-informed or like the key russian decision makers are ill-informed in the way that lots of americans are because they're all getting i mean most people I talk to are radically ill-informed about this, even people in the media. I mean, they think, or, or people who seem to have, who have, like, better than average awareness of this stuff. Like, they also have thought that, because Kevin McCarthy made this blank check comment, that really meant that, you know, Ukraine funding was in serious jeopardy and blah, blah, blah. And it's just, it was just, it's just garbage. I mean... I, I, I covered enough myself personally of, of these Republican congressional candidates to know that it, it never amounted to any kind of ironclad commitment to do anything differently in Ukraine. And if anything, it was, it was the opposite. I mean, Rick Scott, who um, ran the uh, Senate campaign wing, essentially, of the uh, House of the – rather, the uh, – Rick Scott ran the campaign operation of the Senate Republican Caucus. Um, he's more hawkish on Ukraine than Biden. He will say stuff like, yeah, we have to make sure we're spending our money wisely. But to him, spending money wisely means um, spending money on even more weapons systems and, and making sure that they're, they're uh, transported to Ukraine more expeditiously. So that, that's his idea of what not giving a blank check means or what providing oversight means. Um, 
So, yeah, it was just a total misconception. Um, and it would be ironic if uh, that misconception as originated in, like, the American punditocracy and media sphere had enough of an impact that it actually you know, affected the Russian calculus on the war, on their war progress. But um, Yeah, well, this is, this is yeah. really the theory as to why R- Russia might have... I mean, the, Russia's judgment does not seem like their understanding of American politics doesn't seem good. I mean, there's not a lot of indication right. <laughs> to, to that they know what they're doing. And this could have been why they would have wanted to help Trump in 2016. I mean, they're watching the media, and the media's like, this guy loves Russia. Like, he's, he loves Putin. He's Putin's boyfriend. And you can imagine, you know, Russia sitting there and say, oh, yeah, we really should help that guy win. That's yeah. the guy and, then Trump, and the Trump administration is more hawkish on Russia than the Obama administration. Yeah, this is, this is the irony, right? This is so funny. Like, maybe they'll help Trump win in 2024, and he'll, like, start a war with <laughs> you know. So, you know, it doesn't seem like they've learned their lesson. Well, did you see in Trump's announcement speech that he, he did a little riff on the Poland missile situation? And he said, well, it looks like the missiles were fired by probably Russia. And was that the same? Was that the same, was that the same day? Or, I thought, yeah, it was uh, the same day. It was the same day. Okay. It was later uh, that day. He said it was fired by Russia? Or are you well, he said, no, he said the missiles that hit Poland were probably fired by Russia. Yeah. So, well, he, was actually, so he, was, he was aligning with Ukraine's interpretation. <laughs> Yeah. No, but I think that early. I don't think people even knew yet. I thought I thought everyone was. I thought people mostly assumed um, early. Um, well, no, I mean, no. It was it was hours later. I mean, it was at night um, when Trump made the announcement. I mean, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. know. He couldn't. He, he he was just riffing, so it doesn't make. It, you know, I wouldn't read too much into it. It's just sort of funny that you know if if Trump really was this compromised, you know, Russian stooge, as he's still probably going to be made out to be. Even you know, after everything that's gone on, you, you expect him to have an instinct to make to speculate in the opposite direction. Yeah, but I don't know. Who knows? Maybe the last time he checked the news, like it was just everyone was assuming it was it was Russian. I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, a qu- one one thing quickly on the poll Poland incident, and then we'll go to calls. Um, a thought that I had, and you know, let me tell me if you think this is accurate, is that. Um, you know, I don't think Joe Biden himself and you know most people in the administration are absolute zealous, fanatical sociopaths where they they literally consciously want to instigate World War III. Like, I think back during the spring when Biden rejected the idea of imposing a no-fly zone on the ground that it would mean World War III, I think he was probably, you know, more or less sincere in his reasoning there. Um and so, you know, this was uh, an incident where a brash or yeah, a rash reaction to the missiles incident, if they had gone along with the, what Ukraine was alleging, may well have been the actual beginning of World War III, right? If, you know, they made a snap judgment um, and invoked Article 5 or something and launched, you know, an attack on Moscow in retaliation, that would have been it. Uh, and I doubt... That Biden actually desires an outcome along those lines. Um, again, because he's not like suicidal. Like you, you don't, you have to be truly crazy to actively want nuclear war. Um, and this, and this is that. But initiating World War Three is, in practice, what Zelensky and his top officials have been adv- advocating for for months. I mean, since the beginning. First, it was no fly zone. Close the sky. 
give us the longest range missiles so we, you know, that can attack Moscow potentially and on and on and on. Um, make Russia a state sponsor of terrorism so nobody can ever speak to them again and they're totally shut off from the rest of the world and per- for permanently. Um, Biden, the Biden administration has slightly cut against some of those more maximalist demands. Um, and this Poland missiles incident was the first time that it required them to actually contradict Ukraine. Um, because you know, Ukraine was saying, Zelensky and the defense minister and the top, you know, presidential advisors, all these people were immediately sounding the alarm that this was a deliberate strike by Russia on Polish slash NATO territory. Um, so while that's true, so while it's true that the Biden administration, I think, is generally inclined to not want to just proactively initiate literal World War Three. That's kind of a low bar to clear, right? And it kind of almost goes to the past because what's, what they are doing is pursuing a clear policy framework, a, p- a clear strategy on a more overarching basis that is incrementally making more likely the initiation of World War III, whether they consciously want it or not, right? I mean, most people don't want world war, right? <laughs> In the previous world wars were not because like literally anybody just wanted a world war for no good reason. Um, it was because these kind of alliance structures and these um, interventionist paradigms take on a momentum of their own. And, you know, at a certain point through like inertia and through, um, again, just kind of an uncontrolled momentum spiral, uh, are not, not able to be restrained. <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, Biden probably doesn't want to just, give, you know, uh, give in to any Ukraine provocation and the minute Zelensky tweets something, you know, launch a uh, missile salvo against uh, territorial Russia that brings forth the next uh, nuclear war. Um, on, the, on the other hand, uh it's kind of like a, you know, the, the frog boiling in the pot effect where we're still going closer and closer to that being a potential scenario, uh, given the policy paradigm that re- really is not being contested by anyone. So anyway, yeah, that was my, uh, my thought. Yeah, I that. guess my, my question is, uh, you know, at the beginning of the conflict, I thought more that I thought, I thought that way. Um, I wonder now, though, like, you know, what, what could Biden do right now? Because Ukraine has these maximalist demands. Russia also has these maximalist demands, and supposedly at export territories, you know, that doesn't even control. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it's not even, uh, you know, it's, it's not really talking like it's going to, you know, it, it really wants a peace deal either. So I, I don't know, yeah. like, what can, what, can the, what can the U.S. really nudge, you know, Ukraine to do? I mean, the do exactly do what exactly i mean it's it's a very tough situation well i mean in theory they could make the provision of continued aid contingent on you know overt pursuit by ukraine of some sort of at least out a framework for a negotiation right i mean uh, they could use it as a as leverage to require the initiation of some sort of diplomatic, at least engagement, 
uh, which they're not doing. But then, but then, but also, I don't know. I mean, maybe they can't do anything. I mean, maybe it's past that yeah. point. You know, maybe when the <laughs> when uh, we're told that that uh, preliminary outline for a settlement was reached in um, early April, and then it was, you know, um, thrown off course when Buka happened. Um, you know, maybe that was the final straw, and that just kind of set both sides on a intractable trajectory toward yeah. uh, toward you know mutually maximalist, irreconcilable objectives. I don't know. Yeah, that could also hard, be the case. It's, it's hard to do it. I mean, it's hard to do at this point because the momentum is with the momentum is with Ukraine. Uh, so when Ukraine was losing, I mean, maybe that was sort of it, it was sensible. Now I think Ukraine will say, "Look, if you told us to negotiate three, two months ago." Russia might have kept Kherson forever, right? And they say now, you know, now we have Kherson, and who knows, maybe Ukraine can take other territories. So I think it's just very, very difficult. And the Ukrainians are going to say, you know, why, you know, why would you, why would you cut us off at this point when there's still gains to be made? Later is the time to negotiate. Yep, that's plausible. Okay, let's go to let's go to calls. And uh, here's a match of our Romanian correspondent. Matt, you're up. Unmute left hand, bottom left hand corner to unmute. Yep. I was going to ask you, did you speak to the code pink gal? Oh, did you saw that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I didn't. It was funny. Um, what? You Were you watching that live? No, 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 no. I just saw okay. pictures on my locked Twitter account. So apparently I'm too offensive for even. Even the chaos of Mr. Musk. Okay, yeah. When, when, when one of the more brazen infomercial segments of the Politico Defense Summit was underway, meeting some Politico, like, audience engagement executive or, like, somebody, some non-journalist person from Politico was, quote, interviewing, I believe it was the president and CEO of, of Lockheed Martin. Um, yeah, some, a girl jumped, <laughs> on to sta- jumped on the stage and started screaming. It was funny. Like, there was almost no reaction to her. It was, yeah, it was like, people like just kind of barely even noticed. I mean, obviously they noticed that. How old that was happened. she? Like, ballpark it. How old was she? Um, yeah. I would guess um, uh, late 20s. Oh, okay. She so there is some anti-war sentiment in some... Uh, yeah, at least this one girl, and she and she was clearly coming from like a left wing. I mean, I didn't even know she was affiliated with Copink, but obviously that makes sense. But she like she she screamed something about Palestine, and and then another, another girl, another girl actually uh, who who looked even younger potentially. She stood up just in the audience and um, continued the rant uh, once the the girl who was on stage was. Carried off, <laughs> a giant, so was it, they a giant, were anti- a, a big security, anti-Israel protesters, or the whole, the whole. Uh, no, they were they were anti Lockheed Martin. Well, yeah, they read Hananiah. You know, he's popular among the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that she was screaming about Bruce Lockheed Pete Martin. Jackson. She was screaming anti. Uh, she was screaming Lockheed Martin is part of the problem. They're uh, the whole problem. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and she was. I mean, she was right, but then. As she was, at, she was at one point like the a giant guy uh, came onto the stage and li- literally picked her up and lifted her up, oh my god, and, and moved her off. I mean, and then um and then another girl who was I guess with her in her party stood up from the audience and continued the speech 
And it was funny because she kind of, nobody really reacted, reacted to it either. And then she kind of ran out of material and just trailed off and then just left. Uh, like nobody even removed her. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. You know who uh, protested the Afghanistan war at the start of it in a pink tutu? Um, I'll give you a hint. She's bisexual and bipartisan. Uh, that would be Kristen Cinema. Yeah. Former you know. Green Party member. Yeah, yeah. She marched around her pink tutu. Not many people protest in Afghanistan. Um, yeah, she, Kristen, Kristen Cinema. She was she was hardcore. Yeah, Back she in the day. really uh, turned a turned a thing. Did you? Um, are you guys reading the? Okay, so let's <laughs> go off serious stuff. Just the professional class of liberal meltdowns that Twitter might go away. Like, you know who this David O. Atkins guy is? <laughs> I know the name, unfortunately. He's, he's, as you're speaking, he's having like an emotional breakdown. What he's, he like, he's like crying to Chris Hayes. He's like, I'm not going to let these alt-right fascists beat me, even though Twitter was great for sourcing information. We'll build something in no time, and these evil people will never win. Elon Musk is. Oh, I'm blocked. You know, I'm blocked by David O. Atkins. Are you? I used to be. I used to be able to access his incredible insights, but I guess no longer. I'll have to go into my incognito mode. <laughs> they're so. I, I guess what gets me is their whole thing was like they're such. First of all, they're not. They're children. They don't read like literature. They read like comics, and apparently there's things called web comics too. So not only Marvel movies, but like there's this thing XYD or whatever, XCD. Well, that's like the original webcomic. Right. Okay. So they all had this one I remember that's like, actually, the First Amendment only applies to the government and a private corporation can show you the door like someone kicking you out of a party for being an asshole. Okay. That, that's how they were defending cancel culture <laughs> like seven years ago. And now right. it's happening to them, but it's literal, like literal Nazism. Like, but what's happening to, but that's the thing. What is actually happening to them? Yeah, no, I think it's solidarity. Like, Richard, make fun of me for this, please. But it, it's class solidarity. It's the liberal PMC, the, like, petit bourgeois, I guess. Like, the, the PMC class solidarity, dude. They, some Twitter employees were fired. Those Twitter employees were helpful for their professional careers, too, because they censored and promoted their tweets. And, like, it's total class solidarity. And you never see this when, like, a janitor gets fired or a, you know, whatever. Like... My dad was a janitor, by the way. Uh, I went to Ivy League school, but I'm not, not bragging. Hey, you know, whatever. Humble um, brag. You, know, you see it, you know? Well, I mean, it helps, you know, Richard. <laughs> Richard, how did a, a person like me go to a, go to an Ivy League school, the number one Ivy League school in my pro for MBA? Oh, congrats. Well, for, how, how did you do it? No, no, I but I'm leading you up for this. Like, there's only one way someone like with my background could have gone. It's because I got a military service, right? So I'm part of the... Uh, Selected. Oh, you got a, you, know. you got military affirmative action. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they have that too. Um, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to. They're bragging about they're bragging about that before the Supreme Court. They're saying we do we don't just do uh, you know we don't just do uh, race based affirmative action. We help our veterans and, and all this other stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, this is this is the control of information. These people really cannot. I mean, the the internet really traumatized them because they were used to just you know everything was CNN or the New York Times or whatever. Um, and then, like every, you know, like 2015, they started going crazy. Uh, YouTube, you know, these alternative voices on YouTube, these other, uh, these other places, Twitter. Uh, the, you know, the, you had the first wave of censorship around 2016 when Trump was coming up. Um, and uh, yeah, this is just this is just, Musk buying Twitter is the greatest crisis since 
since that so, point. So you're maybe this is a good Richard question. You know, as a conservative man, like, do you perceive it as like <laughs> they, they grew up into this woke culture where they're literally offended by this information, or do you see it as a power play? And I know it's probably are, a mixture of both. Are you a conservative? Is Richard a conservative man? I've never heard himself identify. <laughs> I don't think as he's such. a conservative movement guy, but he's you know. He's yeah, a strong always, Muslim uh, patriarch uh, that uh, believes uh, what, in free markets. Yeah, always just appeared. I was going to say always is going to have a good uh, opinion on that. Um, what was the question? Oh, <laughs> is it more like the coddling of the American mind? These kids, these liberal kids were babied and they're culturally like, oh, believe, legitimately offended. No, you think it's a power play, right, for censorship? No, no, I don't believe, I don't believe that. I don't believe that either. I mean, I think, uh, no, it's probably, no, actually, it's more closer to the... The first thing, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a power. I don't think it's a power play. I, I don't think, I don't think it works like that. I think, I think it's a, um, it's a uh, more emotional uh, reaction. And you know, this is the same for conservatives too. I think that's that's what's driving mass politics. Psychological theory of the culture war I wrote like two months ago, and sort of that was good. On. I sent that around. Uh-huh. Yeah, I appreciate that. So yeah, I mean that that, that that's there's nothing. Uh, Nothing, um, uh, you know, th- nothing unique about this. This is just sort of uh, another, you know, another episode. And, you know, it's, it's, it's status. It's, the, 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 you know, it's being in control, but it's being in control for the sake of, you know, feeling good about themselves. Not because, oh, this person has a job and they're going to get me, you know, they're going to promote my tweets or whatever. Yeah, I think you're right. Mostly right. There's occasions, you know, but I think it's mostly right. All right, Matt. Well, this is always fun. Take take it easy. Agreed. Uh, all right, uh, Andrew. How's it going? I'm well. How are you? Uh, how are you, gentlemen? You know, no, no, I'm uh, hanging in. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I gotta say, I'm admired by the amount of pieces of shit you're blocked by on Twitter. That's pretty funny. <laughs> I always come across a new surprise. Um, where you know one of these rant names that I'm vaguely cogn- cognizant of uh, turns out to have gone out of their way to block me. Yeah, that's good. You're in their head. <laughs> so uh, I just wanted to talk to both of you on two topics. The first is Ukraine. The second is the funniest one was when I found out randomly that Patricia Arquette blocked me. Who is this? I'm not familiar. <laughs> Patricia Arquette. No, she's a big. Uh, she's big... an actor. Yeah. Oh Jesus. Okay. Well. Uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, just yeah, your reach is boundless, apparently, right? Yeah, from everywhere from the swamp in DC to LA, that's great. Um, but yeah, so Ukraine and Trump are the two things I wanted to talk to you about. <clears throat> the first uh, thing on Ukraine, I just wondered both of your takes on why it is that Zelensky keeps insisting that they didn't do this. Um, because it's kind of odd to me because, I mean, the U.S. has gone out of their way to say that – and not just the U.S. Everyone in NATO is saying it's uh, Russia's – Well, I mean, here's my – here's my – the conspiracy theory that I couldn't help but notice emerged in my own head. Mm-hmm. Or here's like one – where I'm not asserting this with any degree of certainty, certain, certainty right? It's just a thought that occurred to me. Maybe Russia did do it. I don't know. And and be, but because so maybe in other words maybe Ukraine is right. Hmm. I've and, seen other and people the, say that. And the and the U.S. is 
that insisted about not wanting to allow the war to broaden. Remember, that was at least one of the purported aims of the whole U.S. intervention, that it was Could you explain geared the toward... Uh, what motive? Well, in the conspiracy there, what is the motive for Russia hitting a Polish tractor and killing some poor bastard with a apparently air defense missile, apparently um, rigged? Like, what, what's the motive if Russia has done this? Because I and, got, and again, and again, I'm just teasing out a scenario. I'm not endorsing I it. Yeah, I, I know you um, don't, but I just don't get that angle. I never understood. Well, I, I don't get any angle of this. That's it's just so weird. Like none of it adds theory. up. Okay, yeah, well, I'm, I'm interested to hear what your theory is. Could I hear Richard first before yeah. I submit? Because I don't want to taint the pool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what was what's what's exactly the question? Why is it that Zelensky is insisting that Ukraine hasn't done this still, considering that Russia or the U.S. and NATO have already given them an out in saying that even if Ukraine did this, it was an accident. Russia is responsible. They still are insisting they didn't do it. So why? Uh, yeah, I mean those those are both good theories that you guys said. So yeah, it could be that it's actually it is actually true. It is a Russia thing, and uh, the U.S. doesn't want it to be. Or you know, more likely, it was actually the anti uh, uh, the anti uh, you know, anti mis- the missile defense. And um, yeah, I don't have any special theory beyond that. Yeah, I think that's and, but. But the, but the complicating factor there, right, and which what makes Zelensky and the Ukraine officials' insistence that they, it wasn't their missile all the more strange, is that they, of course, have to know right. that the U.S. has the entire yeah, I, area covered with state-of-the-art radar systems and, and would have figured out pretty much instantaneously who fired the missile and from what trajectory. Well, so why why so why would Ukraine contradict that? Publicly, especially contradict the sponsor, the chief sponsor of their war effort, and risk creating a fissure. Yeah, I think they're very confident in the. They might be very, very confident in their ability to play the Western media. They might be even overconfident. Yeah, that's what I think. I agree. Yeah, I think. Uh, Well, explain your theory, Andrew. Okay, so my theory is that it was a Ukrainian air defense missile that went off errantly. And if you want to get really conspiratorial, which I don't, but some people like would say they did it on purpose to try to trigger an increase in arms or whatever, right? An escalation to get more funding from NATO. But I think it could have just been an accident. But for whatever reason, Zelensky said this originally. Do you think Zelensky went out and looked himself, or do you think he was informed by his people, right? So now there's a credibility crisis in Ukraine, right? So you have to think about it that way, I think, in terms of domestic messaging, including his international messaging, because I don't understand what other motive does Zelensky have for insisting that he has the correct information other than there's a credibility crisis now, because... NATO and Biden are out there saying that. And when you said that, Michael, that this was like something about uh, worried that they'd retaliate immediately to hearing a missile hit Poland. I think NATO and Biden said this specifically to address worries that something like that would happen. They said that they traced the entire launch to impact in real time. So basically they're saying they knew what happened the whole time. And. So there's there's not really a worry like they it's not going to be some instant retaliation or something. But the idea is if Zelensky knows this, so why is he lying to the public? He's not going to fool either. He's overconfident in the West's uh, media faith in him, or he's got a credibility crisis in Ukraine. Right. So it's like a domestic. It's like a domestic political. Well, you have to consider incentive for Zelensky, and then so he like he he needs to retain control like within his own chain of command. Well, who's and he so and therefore he can't he can't 
risk conflict with his military brass, whom it's not even clear that he necessarily has functional control over. Yeah, I think that's the domestic and interpolitical, whatever you want to call it, with this military situations. These are angles that aren't being really considered because it's like just looked at as purely international messaging. Another another oddity is why did the AP report within an hour or less? You know, pretty pretty much the first report that came out was the AP quoting an anonymous U.S. official, intelligence official. Um, blaming Russia. Like, what was that about? Why, <laughs> well, where did that come from? Great questions. Who yeah. did I ever find out? That's another. Yeah, question. I mean, these things don't mean anything. Always, whenever there's a uh, initial story, like you know, the, there's all the, whenever there's a news story, the initial reporting on it is always sort of confused and contradictory. And then conspiracy theorists love this because they the Paul Pelosi thing is so funny. I'm talking about. Some guy who is pretty smart, and you'd think he'd be smart enough not to fall for this stuff, but he's basically always Elon uh, Musk. No, <laughs> close. I mean, it's 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 that sort of almost at that level. But you know, he he uh, you know he'll look at the oh, initially the FBI said this, and the local police said that, and it's it's, it's like this is every single crime or every single uh, terrorist attack, and you know, he just he still buys that Pelosi's uh you know ha- having a gay orgy or, or something. Yeah, and I think that, you know, you don't take that early assessment from NATO uh, sources seriously. My first thought is that it's just U.S. media jumping the gun as usual. Yeah, exactly. But could I ask the part two on Ukraine? Yeah, yeah. One more thing on Trump. Uh, part two on Ukraine is I don't think people realize how bad it's going to get if this thing continues in the way that is predicted. It's not going to be a stalemate because Russia could mobilize further, and I don't think that – People are going to – that saying, be careful what you wish for. If Putin gets deposed, I don't think it's going to be for a peacenik like Jimmy Carter. It's going to be for someone that probably <laughs> wants to continue this. <laughs> Jimmy know, Carter I wasn't much say. of a peacenik. Though. I mean, I, sure. I know what you mean. That. Yeah. So – Well, I mean, one thing I don't understand – sorry to interrupt really quickly. Further, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Just – I mean, I'll let you, you – can, I want you to finish your Trump thing. But just one thing that I'm not clear on is that supposedly you – know, you know, what Millie says is that – you know, there's going to, and what others say, just as a matter of course, as if, as if there's, there's going to be a lull in the winter, right? And I remember hearing when the war first started that actually winter was prime fighting season because the ground is frozen, and then you can and you can actually transport stuff, whereas the lull would come yeah. in the wet season, so spring right. or fall when there's when it's muddy terrain. So wh- why is it that people are now saying that there's going to be some kind of you know, frozen front line during the winter. I thought the opposite was the case, but maybe well, I'm dep- missing something. I guess it depends on things like weather, right? Like reduced visibility perhaps. But, you know, I, ultimately, I don't think that's that's just all puffery, really, in my opinion. It's all just a bunch of speculation. Yeah, I agree. You know, the Russians know what they're going to do. No one else does. And that's it. But from my opinion, I, they, you have to consider that they could mobilize further, much further, if they needed to, if they feel like that's where they want to go. And they haven't even fully integrated everyone that they've mobilized in this first round. So, and if you consider that, you know, the U.S. industrial capacity has to expand, you don't snap your fingers. It happens over years, at least months. I mean, are we going to do a fucking revolutionary industrial revolution jobs program here for Ukraine and Taiwan? I don't think so. 
I don't think we're going to get it done that quickly. So there's there's factors to consider here that it could get a lot worse for Ukraine. The power could be out, could be a bad winter, could be further mobilization. I think the idea that Russia's losing is too easily accepted <coughs> by too many people and that uh, it's going to get a lot worse. No one considers that. Anyway, that's yeah, all I have uh, to say. Yeah, Mearsheimer did a, um, another interview uh, with The New Yorker with this guy, Isaac Chotner. I don't know why anybody does an interview with Isaac Chotner because his o- only intent ever is to make his interview subject look ridiculous. And he did it again with Mearsheimer. And uh, here's what Mearsheimer, as of today, says he thinks... Uh, so uh, Chotner asks Mearsheimer, why do you think the Russians are being so brutal? Mearsheimer says, I think the Russians want to win the war. And to win the war, you invariably look for ways to escalate to gain advantage over the other side. Then Chotner asks... What do you think a Russian victory looks like to the Russians at this point? And Mearsheimer says, I think their goal is to conquer and control those four oblasts they have annexed and to make sure that, that the Ukrainian rump state that is left is neutral and is not associated with NATO in any formal or informal way. So in so, in so many words, Russia's um, ultimate objectives haven't changed at all since the beginning of the war, except for the addition of yeah, the, these expanded. territorial conquest goals, which are still operative. So what what, what are people thinking is going to, like, no. yeah. alter this course? And just because they pulled back from Kherson, they immediately said, Putin came out and said, it's still Russian. We'll, we'll be back. Like, yeah. this isn't, well, okay, referendum was just a joke, guys. Like, this is, so, yeah, I agree. Mearsheimer sounds pretty reasonable there. Uh, what, was like your, to, uh, what was your Trump uh, point? You guys, just going to move on to that. I would yeah. just... Ask both of you if you listened to his introductory yeah. speech and what did you think of it? And again, I don't want to give my impressions until I hear from both of you. Did you listen to it, Richard? Uh, yeah, I listened to um, most of it. I listened to like a lot of, lot of it, like an hour or so. Um, and it was extremely, I mean, I said this on Twitter, extremely boring. I mean, I think he's in like a TV show that has really gotten stale. Um, it's like Chairman Kim is my friend. You know, my African Americans had the greatest economy you know, ever. Um, you know, nobody, everyone respected us. It's just very, very boring. I think he's lost some magic. There's a lot of polls that came out. Some of them are just like they seem like uh, you know, like Republicans wanting this to be true, but they have DeSantis like ahead. But then the, a, a serious poll came out, like from uh, uh, it was YouGov. That had DeSantis ahead nationally by ten points, so DeSantis had a great night election night. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was really. I mean, I think he got. I think he was getting stale in twenty twenty. Like he had really, I think, lost a lot of his magic. Uh, it's a little thing, but he talks about African Americans and Hispanics. Like twenty sixteen, Trump was like funner. Like he didn't do that like politically correct stuff. Um, well, he did. He did. He actually. He actually did. I mean, he would say, you know, the uh, the blacks love me, and no, but it was yeah. The saying it like that is like makes it funny. The blacks love me. Like you're not. I remember he said, "There's my black. There's my." African yeah, yeah. And he literally he's... pointed some guy out. I love. I love. I love the uh, less than less educated. Yeah, that was fun. But now it's like African Americans. Yeah, I love the poorly educated. That's what he said. <laughs> oh, um, he does. Well, That's I mean, true. I went to I, I, I talked to uh, I talked to you about this, this Richard at the time. But when I went to that um, you know America First policy conference thing uh, over the summer in D.C. that Trump actually spoke at the first time he had been back in D.C. since he left office in you know the in in the rubble of January sixth. The speech was also pretty boring. You know, it was low key. It was 
um, you know, you almost wanted to doze off listening to it, which is not the case typically with with Trump, right? He's, if nothing else, he's an entertainer. I heard a lot and of he Trump was, supporters like a, say they stopped listening halfway through. Uh, and he's like, you know, uh, I, like, I remember like the the key insight that I had got from going to his campaign events in 2016 during the primaries and the um, general election is that it was, I mean, it pretty pretty much was a stand up comedy show. I mean, I remember I went to one, it was actually, for some reason, he had a, a general election rally in Connecticut in August of 2016. And um, I remember just everyone just cracking up the entire time. And it was genuinely funny. Like, I was laughing, too. Um, just because, you know, he just has a funny manner. Um, Dude is 76. 76. I mean, Biden, yeah. like, you see Biden every few years, like, how, you know, worse he looks every few years, right? I mean, um, but yeah, but I was, I was going to say, though, I was going to qualify that with, I think the substance of what he was saying, to the extent that any substance can be gleaned, probably could be pretty effective. Um, I actually have a suspicion that some of his people, I mean, I actually know his people follow me on Twitter. Like, at, at the... I'll leave it at that, but um, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure they 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 kind of poached an insight for me about like the ridiculousness of these environmentalists who talk about the um, you know climate change and stuff and about how the oceans will rise one eighth of an inch over the course of 200 to 400 years, but they don't give they don't care about nuclear weapons at all um from an environmental standpoint like they he you know they made that into a, a pretty snappy line for him which you know I thought was actually pretty interesting that he said it put it that way um I don't know I mean I just think the uh do you think the magic's gone I, I, I don't know I mean I think it I think yeah I think it's going to be so I mean I think I think I think he's This is I mean, a disagreement among even the people that support him right now which is a this is not how his candidacy started last time which it, it well no because he's in a much i mean he's not he's not some bomb throwing outsider this time right, right? i mean he's the he's uh, he's a former president so it's, it's when he started coming. when he started in 2015 he was the host of the apprentice no he's he's coming back a loser is what he is honestly that's my impression now that yeah 2022 the election was went badly for him i mean because republicans right. are poorly uh, Herschel Walker, my God! I mean, you watch these videos; I, they are shocking. Yeah, Michael, did you see the the one on uh, the werewolves and the vampires? <laughs> I oh did. my God! I did. Oh, I mean, I find him funny no, though. I need to... I, not that I think well, you, it's a good idea for him to be a U.S. senator, but I do. Are you kidding? I, me? I do enjoy listening to him just from an entertainment standpoint. I've been listening to people that hoped Fetterman and Walker would get in so that we have more brain damage in the Senate, and at this point, <laughs> I think I'm on board with that because this whole project is going downhill in America. I just think it's foolish to underestimate the um, pull that a former oh, president will have in a primary race. Yeah, I, I mean, still, he, I think he's still. Like, I think it's. I think him and DeSantis are. You know, I think it's going to be one of them, and I think uh, I'm not even sure which one is the favorite. I think they're. And I'm not. I mean, I'm not sold. I mean, I. Uh, way, I'm, I'm not convinced DeSantis yes. is even going to run. Oh, I, I will, again, I'll bet you. I'll bet you anything. DeSantis runs. If he doesn't, there's no one that can. I mean, if he doesn't run, right? No, DeSantis I mean, will. DeSantis will run. I guarantee. DeSantis will run. Okay. He's I mean, so DeSantis wants to spend a year and a half in wants, an like, all-out 
brawl with Donald you Trump. Be, yes, listen, he's a politician he's, and he wants to be president. And when you when the betting markets give you a forty percent chance of winning a nomination, you don't get a lot of chances like that in life. Anyone would yeah, take well, that. Anyone. Uh, Mario, Qu- Mario Cuomo didn't take it. <laughs> well, but think about this. Trump's got the documents thing going on. He's got a legal Mario Cuomo was a shoe in for the Democratic nomination in nineteen eighty eight and he didn't take it. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not aware of the uh, the sort of uh, the story there. What was there? Well, reason? there was a thing. I mean, look up the Hamlet on the Hudson. Right, there was a whole thing where his plane was getting ready to take off from New York to New Hampshire for him to start campaigning for the New Hampshire primary in the Democratic primaries. Right, I mean, he was probably one of the most high profile, if not the most high profile, Democratic figure in the country in uh, 1988, and uh, he was deliberating on it till the very last second. And then, literally, on the with the plane on the tarmac, he decided he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna run. Hmm, and then, you know, well, Michael Dukakis, <laughs> who was pretty obscure, he ended up. Did he, did he give a reason? Okay, well, did he give a reason? Uh, I'm sure he did. I don't recall the exact reason. Um, we can't read DeSantis's mind, but he definitely has the lane wide open. Yeah, and DeSantis. How old is DeSantis? Uh, What's well, the thing? DeSantis is forty-two, young. right? I mean, no, but that's that's a reason to that's a reason to do it because he's at the height of his energy and his. Uh, and you know, he's he doesn't know if he's going to have that. He's not going to know if he's going to have that chance again. Like Obama, people were saying in two thousand eight. Yeah, yeah, they um, were. You know, Hillary. Wait your Hillary's turn. Figured, you can't wait your turn because half the yeah. time it's an incumbent of your own party. You can't run at that time. And then the other half of the time, it's like two thousand eight, where like the economy crashes and like your party can't win. Right. Yeah. And so, like, you only have, like, right. one or two chances in a lifetime because, you know, if, if it's not DeSantis, if, if, you know, Trump wins, maybe Trump's vice president or maybe Trump screws up so badly. Right. Any Democrat is going to win. Uh, so he's not going to be guaranteed to have a chance, you know, four, eight years from now. There's going to be other people who are new. So, uh, yeah, he's, I, think, I think he goes for it. I think DeSantis is not uh, I don't know what Cuomo's situation is. I think it's notable because it's unusual. I think well, most I mean, I mean, if every uh, my rule of thumb, and maybe I'm contradicting myself here. My rule of thumb, like it was before the 2020 primaries, uh, even before the 2016 primaries, everybody who you think is going to run will run, because there's really no downside to not to running. Um, it just it greatly expands your profile, your donor network, your uh, again, just national notoriety, which any politician wants because then they can parlay that into a whole host of other things, even if they're a relatively minor candidate. Like Tim Ryan wouldn't have been the Senate nominee or maybe wouldn't have been the Senate nominee from uh, Ohio this year, even though he lost, uh, if he hadn't run for a president in 2020, which hardly anybody even remembers. Uh, but it, it, it increases profile, it increases donor network, and it increases leverage. So, yeah, I mean, I think um, by that school of thought, DeSantis would run, and but so would Mike Pence. I mean, Mike Pence is alluding that he's that he's going to run, which would be amazing. Yeah, um, he, Pompeo, uh, Christie, um, but they'll co- who else? They on Nikki H- Nikki Haley. I mean, all these people. I guess you know they're they're setting the groundwork. John uh, uh, Sununu, the governor of uh, New Hampshire, Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland. They're all alluding to running too. So, I mean, it looks like, I mean, if you go by that rule of thumb that everybody who, who is giving indications that they're going to run will actually run, then it's, it's going to be just as crowded of a field as it was in 2016. 
Well, the Dems had a crowded field, and they eventually backed Biden. They collapsed behind Biden. I, I think yeah. maybe the GOP learned from their mistake. And yeah, that's true. The, the, the interesting thing about 2016 was the best alternative to Trump as far as actually beating him was Ted Cruz. And right. there were reports at the time that they hated Cruz more than Trump. Like John Boehner was like, Cruz right. is actually worse and than Trump. Were, they were blindsided by Trump. Uh, yeah, and so there was... He's running with investigations left and right. He might be fucking indicted. I mean, it's a totally different world. Trump is so vulnerable. I'm sorry, Richard. Yeah, he's, no, he, he's vulnerable. You're right. He's all the advantages. He's got a cult of personality. Um, he's the former president. He goes in, you know, 100% name recognition and everyone loves him. Um, but yeah, I mean, DeSantis is also a contender. I mean, the fact that like DeSantis is not actually that famous, like his name recognition is not that great, like he is for people like us. But the fact that he's like tied with Trump in some of these polls and some of these polls he's beating him while Trump is the president, that's not that's not great for Trump. Well, you're saying Trump is vulnerable, right? But Trump has far more institutional support beginning this primary cycle than he did in 2016. In 2016, he had none. He does. He has more institutional support. I don't think he could be black. I think of course he does. I mean, Lindsey Graham is the is the number one proponent of Trump running. He has been for months. It's it's a Uh, he was just endorsed today by uh, Tommy Tuberville, the (laughs) Alabama senator. (laughs) I mean, you you laugh, but I I mean that's institutional support. That's that's one of fifty Republican senators. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Elise Stefanik. Elise Stefanik endorsed him immediately she's in the house leadership yeah it's yeah he does so yeah he does have more institutional support than he did when he first started well you're you're right but i think what's more important than that though is if you look at conservative media so in 2016 trump had breitbart he had Infowars, he had uh gateway pundit he had ann Coulter, he had drudge report which was a much bigger deal back then um so he actually had a lot of like the alternative right-wing media um this time I don't think any of those people are actually with him. Uh, he had talk radio, too. He had, like, Michael Savage. I mean, Rush Limbaugh. These guys, like, love Trump. Hannity. Um, Hannity maybe will still be with him in 2024. Uh, but I think the right-wing media is actually going to be more united with DeSantis than, uh, you know, they were uh, they were united anti-Trump in 2016. So, yeah, I, I would I would take the media over, over individual senators. I think that's that's more important. Mm, I, I think that's maybe. gonna, uh, Michael. I think that's gonna make a lot of people think he's blackmailed. That they've got Trump on a leash, and why are these people supporting him, like Lindsey Graham? I don't know. It's did just, Lindsey Graham? Did Lindsey Graham like endorse him? Lindsey, did, he, did he really? Lindsey? I think so. Didn't he? Um, I, I don't know if he said I hereby endorse Trump since he started running or since he announced this week. But Lindsey Graham has been the chief proponent since Trump left office of him running again. Yeah. Well, I've been up here way too long. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> All right. Thanks, thanks, Andrew. Let's go to uh, Andrew number two. Andrew, the next Andrew, you're up. Andrew the cat. Okay. All right, Michael, if nobody else is going to come up i think i've gotta get going unless anything else you want to yeah you seem like you have domestic issues yeah oh okay andrew's here all right and uh, we'll go we'll go to andrew number two here and then we'll uh we'll wrap up i can keep it quick okay i just um to the point that was made earlier about what is the motivation behind ukraine yeah um claiming that this was a russian missile sort of simultaneously to or after or both after the U.S. had said, yeah, we're certain that this was a Ukrainian air defense missile. I think that um, 
I don't know why people don't bring it up as often that as much as Zelensky does seem to be taking some pride in playing the role of president for real instead of on the TV show when he did it the first time um, and kind of enjoying that, you, you, you have a hard time finding a picture of Zelensky that's not just a portrait um, where there's other people around him where they don't have like Nazi insignias on them. And you can go back to the article from the Kiev Post from a few years ago when he basically had to like storm off after being insulted and saying like, I'm, I'm the president, I'm not a loser. When he was telling people to basically just fulfill yeah, the yeah, basic yeah. first steps of the Minsk Accord and they said, fuck you, also we'll hang you if you, if you end this war. So... I don't know. I think people should bring that. Yeah, up he went. He said, "Like I'm the pres, I'm the president talking here. You have to listen to me." Yeah, and they and they just laughed, and then after that, made you know what are in the case of Ukraine credible threats to Zelensky's safety. And I gotta say that I think people should bring that up more often. Like when people are are quibbling over. Well, I don't think there's that many Nazis in Ukraine. Um, you know, just making the point that, well, there certainly are in, in enough Nazis in the military that they end up in his security detail. And, well, and I mean, did you see some of the footage there. of did, did you see some of the footage of the tanks rolling in to, quote unquote, liberate her <laughs> yeah. where they're actually flying Nazi flags and stuff? Yeah. And and not only the people on the tanks, but some of the people in Kherson are giving the Nazi salute back to them. And yeah, I mean, I think that. <laughs> I think that that should be brought up more often that, uh, that, it, you know, and, and people do make this point regularly, but I think just to harp on the fact that the Nazis never actually won a majority in any election in Germany either. They were, they were allowed to form government by the existing institutional um, people in Germany and the social Democrats did not have their shit together enough to actually form a meaningful opposition to that move and the right. only election in which the nazis participated they had their you know black shirts and brown shirts going out and terrorizing people in the streets and they wielded power with force and i, I think people do make that argument often but i think it should be made more and then as far as like the american press going with it i think it's also pretty clear that there's some divisions within the american policymaking and intelligence um, communities where if it was President Kagan or Newland, I think they would have gone with the, yeah, it was Russia and have the polls go in because the polls are probably the most, you know, willing populace to actually fight Russia if it came down to it or at least take yeah. over with the, Western with the Baltics close behind them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you're right in that. It kind of gets back to what I would what I was saying before, and that the the actual structure of command or the chain of command within the Ukraine state is really not at all clear at this point. It's not even really clear what power Zelensky has over, for example, like the military. Um, he seems mostly like he has a PR function. Now, maybe he does have some degree of command. Uh, but it, it's not at all straightforward, actually, like who is calling the shots. Remember, Ukraine is sort of a weak state. Um, it's a new state. Uh, its constitution is pretty uh, 
dynamic in terms of what's binding and what isn't. And uh, so this idea that, you know, you, uh, Zelensky has power over the U- Ukraine governmental apparatus that's comparable to like what the power that, you know, uh, Biden wields or something as president is just not really substantiated yeah. by evidence, at least as far as I've seen. So, um, yeah, so it do- it is plausible to me that whatever uh, reasoning went into him insisting that the missiles that were fired were not Ukraine's, uh, that probably, that, that could very well owe to whatever political contingencies he has to take into account to like just maintain his hold on power. One of them being, you know, this clearly robust element within the, uh, within Ukraine society and also within Ukraine kind of political culture of these truly radical elements that who knows, maybe would oust Zelensky or, you know, kind of, you know, bring about some kind of coup or whatever, if he were to accede to any number of um, demands to, you know, capitulate or to even negotiate. So, yeah, I do think that's probably an underrated factor in all this. I think, like, just with regards to his control over the military, I think it's important to remember that a very large component, I, I don't remember the exact percentage, but since 2016, like a very large component of Ukraine's armed forces have been these private battalions because primarily the Ukrainian armed forces had a huge rate of defection, suicide, alcoholism in the first years of this conflict. And so I mm-hmm. think the, the decision to switch to these um, paramilitary battalions was really functional because they were more ideologically motivated than like the Georgian Legion, like the the Georgian Legion, yeah. right? And that was that was one of these more private battalions, I guess. But that ended up getting officially incorporated into the military command structure, at least to some extent, right? Just like just yeah. like Azov. Yeah, so you have these people that have spent the last few years answering directly to their funders and NATO. Being some of these battalions were trained to be NATO interoperable alongside the formal Ukrainian armed forces. And then I guess the last thing I'll say is like, I think a lot of people who know a little bit about Zelensky tend to look at him and view his uh, relationship with cocaine more in the light of the mania of someone you imagine to be on a lot of cocaine regularly, you know, actor, Hollywood, (laughs) cocaine mania. I'm wondering now if maybe we should view him more from the lens of, the post coke depression like you've used up all your dopamine you're trapped in a country (laughs) full of nazis and you are on the one hand looking forward to like maybe being able to use your very valuable properties that were revealed in the pandora papers and on the uh, on the other hand you're like will i ever even get to florida like am i just going to be murdered at the end of this (laughs) because i didn't deliver and it is kind of funny, and it's also kind of sad imagining him that way. And I'm like, I wonder if that's really maybe closer to the truth and should be brought up more. But, you know, the people who kind of need to hear that currently think Zelensky is like the most fuckable, heroic president on the planet. And so I'm not really sure. Yeah, he's uh, he, fall he, deaf ears. Yeah, he's at the crashing phase of the Ukraine binge rather than the euphoric high at this point that would make sense <laughs> um yeah. all right andrew well well thanks for that uh, interesting comments um yeah. richard I, I think has to go so we'll uh we'll leave it there uh and thanks everybody for for tuning in yep thanks everyone bye